Take your Bibles, please, and open to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. Let's read a part of our text, and then, and then we'll get into it. Beginning in verse number 5 of Matthew 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they have received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. As we saw last week, there's a shift between chapter 5 and chapter 6, in which Jesus has been talking about what we should do, and now he tells us how we are to do what we are to do. In chapter 6, in the first part of the chapter at least, Jesus deals with three acts of piety that were common among the Jews, that is, giving to those in need, praying, and fasting. And as we have seen and will continue to see, the point or the question of this section is, who is your audience? For whom are you performing, if you wish? Why do you do what you do? In the section that we saw last week on giving to those in need, Jesus presents three possible audiences. The first, other people. And he says, when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets. Don't notify others of what, in fact, you are doing. Uh, They are not to be your audience. You should not seek to be honored by them. But Jesus says, if that's what you want, if you want people to notice you and to praise you and honor you, then that's it. That's your reward. You got what you were looking for. The second possible audience is ourselves. And that is, we may, in fact, not do what we do so that others can see us, And yet, in our own hearts, we sort of replay what we have done and sort of congratulate ourselves, look at how, what a wonderful person I am, that I have helped someone who was in need. The third audience should be our audience, and that is our Father, our Father in heaven. He is the proper audience. He knows all that is done. He keeps track of what is done. Now... Jesus turns to the second act of piety, and that is praying. And as we've seen Jesus do earlier, and then he will continue in chapter 6, he contrasts what his followers are to do with two different groups of people. The first groups of people are the Pharisees. The second group of people are the pagans or the Gentiles. And Jesus tells his disciples, you are not to be like them. If anything, you are to go beyond what they do. Do not be like them. The Pharisees were marked by legalism. That is, they followed rules, and usually not God's rules, but their own rules that they had made up. They were marked by hypocrisy. Uh, They did what they did to be seen by others. The pagans, the Gentiles, on the other hand, are marked by ignorance. They don't know who God is, and they are marked by a faithlessness. So at the end of chapter 5, we saw... If you love those who love you, what reward will you, will get, will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? In the passage today, Jesus points to both groups, the Pharisees, the legalists, 
and the pagans who really don't know who God is and says that they are both doing prayer wrong. And if we are to pray as we should, we should not be like them. Both groups, by the way, messed up in the same area. That is the question of audience. The Pharisees chose the wrong audience. They wanted to be seen by others. The pagans, on the other hand, misunderstood the proper audience because they don't know who God is. And so they think that by babbling on and on that somehow they can get the the attention of the gods. We'll see that in a minute. The first contrast of the Pharisees. Jesus warns that we are not to be like them. The issue, let's be clear, is not posture in prayer. Jesus is not criticizing them to say, uh, don't be like them because they stand when they pray. This is not the issue. What is the proper position for prayer? What is the proper posture for prayer? Well, in scriptures, we find that people kneel when they pray at different times. Um, We've seen this particularly with Paul in the book of Acts. In Acts 20, uh, the last time he sees the Ephesian elders, it's a very emotional scene in Acts 20. He knelt down with all of them and prayed. And after he leaves them, he gets over to Palestine And we read, but when our time was up, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. So I think a position that many people associate with prayer, kneeling is something we find in scripture. But we see Jesus throwing himself on the ground in the garden of Gethsemane with his face to the ground and praying to God there. And so that that is a way to pray as well. But it is also possible to sit and pray. After Nathan tells David the word of the Lord, in which God says, there will be somebody on your throne forever. Then King King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? So we may stand, we may kneel, we may lay on the ground with our face to the ground, we may sit. The issue is not posture, okay? But also the issue is not the place where they pray. We see that they pray in the synagogues, they pray on street corners, if you wish, indoors, outdoors. Um, The synagogues were distinctive. Street corners, on the other hand, are common. You don't have as many synagogues as you have street corners. A synagogue was a place of worship. It is a place where the Jews got together to worship God. It was the center of Jewish life. It is a place where they assembled, where they heard the word of God read. It is a place where they were taught. And it was a place where they prayed. So it's entirely appropriate that the Pharisees pray there. Street corners, on the other hand, are quite common, and we don't normally associate them as a place where a person should pray. But I would argue that street corners are not in and of themselves the wrong place to pray. One writer put it this way, if their motive was to break down segregated religion and their recognition of God out of the holy places into the secular life of every day, then this is a good thing. In other words, if the Pharisees are saying, you don't have to be in a holy place, you don't have to be in a building, you don't have to be with other people to pray, you can actually be out in the open on a street corner and pray. If that's what they were doing, then that's good. But in fact, that's not what they were doing. They were doing, to, they were doing it to be seen of men. Another writer, though, takes the opposite view. And he says, Jesus was not happy with prayer that tried to be a witness. 
I find this intriguing. Prayer is not a form of evangelism addressed to other people. Prayer is addressed to God. So we don't pray to be seen by people, whether it's here in the congregation or out on the street. Um, The place is not the issue. The issue is that of audience. The Pharisees wanted to be seen by men. They weren't praying to God. They were essentially praying to men. Years ago, a minister from New England described an ornate and elaborate prayer offered in a fashionable Boston church. And this is what he said. It was the most eloquent prayer ever offered to a Boston audience. Yeah, it wasn't offered to God. It was offered to the audience. I remember as, I think, a teenager, someone saying at a youth camp that if you ever did anything wrong, they would call a particular pastor in to pray, you know, if they didn't know who had done it. And by the time he was done praying, whoever did it would confess. Well, were they praying to God or were they praying to people to somehow get them to confess what they had done? One writer reasoned, we should never utter one syllable of prayer either public or private, until we are definitely conscious that we have come into the presence of God and are actually praying to him. How do you do that? Well, Jesus tells us, when you pray, and again, you'll notice this is like giving to the needy. It's not if, it's when. Okay, this is something you are to do. Go into your room, close the door, pray to your father. That is, when we pray, we should go somewhere where we can be alone. In Palestinian homes, usually they were, the, the house was just one big open room. There wasn't bedrooms. There weren't bedrooms. There was one separate room that was sort of the, the, the cupboard. It was the supply closet. It's where you kept things. Otherwise, where people slept, where they ate, everything was all just in one big room. So go into the supply closet, if you wish, There you can be alone, close the door, there are no distractions, and you can be alone in the presence of God. There was a saying among the Jews that life is prayer. Sounds very pious, but in many ways this can be an excuse for not praying at all. You're just like, I'm living my life, this is prayer before God. Jesus, in fact, wants us to have a conversation with God. He wants us to use words. In many ways, yes, our life is a prayer to God, but we are to pray consciously, verbally, we are to speak to God. And to do this requires oftentimes shutting out the world, being alone, and then speaking to God. But is this the only way to pray? Is Jesus saying that every time you and I pray, we need to find a closet somewhere and get in there, close the door, and then we can pray to God? We don't always have the luxury of shutting the door, shutting out the world, not being distracted. And Nehemiah chapter 2 always comes to mind for me in this regard. It's a wonderful story of Nehemiah. It begins in chapter 1. Nehemiah, has, uh, he is still in exile. Uh, he hasn't gone back with the refugees back to Jerusalem. He's still working for the king, Artaxerxes, and he hears terrible news. Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. 
For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. When he hears this terrible news, he prays. Then we find out that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king. He is the one who gives the wine to the king. Chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. You're not supposed to be sad in the king's presence. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven. And I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. The key there is in verse number four. Then I prayed to the God of heaven. How do, you, how do you imagine that this happened? Do you imagine that Nehemiah said, excuse me, your majesty, I need to go and find a closet somewhere and close the door and pray? No, he prayed right there within himself. But I would argue that in many ways he did it because he had the days before been praying and fasting before God. But in that moment he prayed within himself and he prayed to God. So, we don't, we, can't, we don't need to pray only in a closet. So this raises a question, is public prayer possible? Well, of course it is. Um, public prayer fills scripture. We find people praying publicly time after time. But I would argue that public prayer only thrives, if you wish, when there is private prayer. When we have time alone with God, without distraction, then it allows us, and at certain times, say when we are together in worship or when we are with family and friends, to pray publicly and pour out our hearts to God. So this is the first contrast, the Pharisees, who like to pray publicly to be seen by people. And Jesus says that's not the way to pray. The second contrast are the pagans. Um, and in many ways, this is tied to the first contrast, um, if you go into a private place to pray, if you go in your closet and you close the door and you're praying to God, uh, do you know to whom you're praying? How do you, what do you think God is like? Well, for the pagans, the pagans thought that the gods were beings that they could harass into giving them what they wanted. They keep on babbling, Jesus says, and it, in, it indicates a lot of words, long prayers, a lot of praying, but also mindless praying, just uh, repeating themselves. The King James has vain repetitions, which is not helpful, it's somewhat misleading. Jesus is not opposed to repeating prayers or repetition in prayers, okay? We have Jesus praying three times the same thing in the Garden of Gethsemane. In the upper room, they prayed for 10 days from the ascension to the day of Pentecost. Paul prayed three times regarding the thorn in the flesh. So, and Jesus is not against long prayers. We read in Luke chapter 6, one of those days Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. I call that long praying. 
Jesus is not opposed to this. Repetition is not the issue. Long prayers are not the issue. What is the issue? It is this, that somehow we think if we pray enough, it'll work. We'll get what it is, in fact, that we want. You will get what you want from God if you keep harassing him and, and just keep after him. And then finally he'll just say, okay, I'll give you what you want. Pagans thought that the gods would only listen after much praying because you had to prove your sincerity. Seneca uh, spoke of fatiguing the gods. You just need to wear them down. Wear them down until you get your prayers answered. And oftentimes such praying loses the quality of making sense. Just, it does become literally babbling, something you do without thinking can become quite mechanical. Why would people pray this way? Well, because they don't know who God is. They have a false view of God. By the way, Jesus is not saying that the pagans pray to the true God. They're praying to false gods. Okay. We who pray to the true God are to be careful that we do not imitate those who pray to false gods. As Jesus tells us, the true God knows what we need before we ask. So we do not pray to inform him. He is our father. He is neither ignorant that we must instruct him nor hesitant. He's like, eh, I don't know if I want to help them out or not. He is our father. He loves his children and he knows all about our needs. Then why should we pray? If he loves us, he's our father, he knows what we need, then why should we pray? One reformer put it this way, believers do not pray with the view of informing God about things unknown to him or of exciting him to do his duty. Come on, God, this is your God. This is what you're supposed to do. Or urging him as though he were reluctant. On the contrary, they pray in order that they may arouse themselves to seek him, that they may exercise their faith in meditating on his promises that they may relieve themselves from their anxieties. It's in prayer that we take these anxieties and give them to him. In word that they may declare that from him alone they hope and expect. He is the one to whom we look for all things, all good things. In the verses that follow, Jesus sets a pattern, a pattern for prayer. But before we come to that, Jesus warns us that we're not to be like the Pharisees who are concerned with how they looked in the eyes of others. True prayer is concerned with God, his name, his kingdom, his will, as we see in the Lord's Prayer. True prayer is always concerned with God's glory, not about ourselves, not our own glory. We're not to be like the pagans whose concern in prayer is not is volume, not content. And basically the bottom line is they want to get what they want to get. By the way, I think this is what most people think prayer is. It's getting what you want. And so teach us how to pray to get what we want and you, know, you can have a bestseller in your hand because people want to get what they want. What is required is humble and thoughtful and trusting prayer. If God is our Father, we are His children, we should trust Him as a child trusts his parents or her parents.
The problem with both the Pharisees and the pagans is they had a false view of God. In some sense, God was secondary to them. For the Pharisees, it was how they appeared. For the pagans, it was getting what they wanted. Okay, so if we're not to pray like the Pharisees and not like the pagans, how are we to pray? What should we say when we pray? Jesus presents us with a model of how we should pray. Not what we should pray, but how we should pray. If you would follow along with me as I read, beginning in verse number 9. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Jesus presents us here with a model for prayer. So is this a model for private prayer in the closet with the door closed or public prayer? Yes. It is a model, in fact, for both. Private, because Jesus has been dealing with the matter of private prayer, praying to your Father who is in heaven. And this prayer is addressed to our Father in heaven. But this is a model for public prayer as well. And do you see it there? The pronouns. The pronouns are not singular, are they? It's our Father. Give us this day our daily bread. What we call the Lord's Prayer is much more than a model for prayer. Jesus isn't simply teaching us the proper etiquette in prayer or the proper protocol when approaching God in prayer. What Jesus is doing is teaching us who God is, who we are, and how we are to live our lives based on those truths. So Jesus begins, our Father in heaven. Jesus' name for God here and throughout the Gospels is strikingly simple and uncomplicated, Father. It is important for us to realize that the phrase our Father is an expression which Jesus gives to us that we are to use when we pray. When he prayed, He didn't say our father when he prayed. He said my father or the father. The relationship that Jesus had with God the father is absolutely unique. He is God the son. And so when he spoke to God the father, it was quite different than when you or I will pray to God. And we see this, by the way. He is the unique son of God. We are sons and daughters of God by adoption. We see this after the resurrection when Jesus approaches Mary Magdalene in the garden. Go instead to my brothers and tell them I am returning to my father and your father, to my God and your God. There is a sense in which the relationship of Jesus is unique and is quite different than ours. But God is our father. The idea of the fatherhood of God is not really a central theme in the Old Testament. I don't know if you've noticed this in some of our prayers of confession, which are taken from the Psalms, oftentimes they begin with Father. Well, that's not from the Psalms. That's something that's been added because now that Jesus has come, we know that God is our Father. And the writers who have uh, adjusted, if you wish, these Psalms have put Father in there. But this is not something typically that we find in the Old Testament. People don't address God as Father in the Old Testament. Um, 
it is by way of analogy, by the way, is this the way you repay the Lord, oh, you foolish and unwise people? Is he not your father, your creator, who made and made you and formed you? That's from Deuteronomy. And then in Psalm 103, the famous passage, as the father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. But it is only when Jesus comes into the world that we now know that we can call God our Father. And I've said this many times before, if Jesus were to stop right there and say, our Father in heaven, then he has opened the doors in in profound ways to see the reality of who God is. 20 times in the Gospel of Matthew, we read our Father in heaven. But we shouldn't be surprised when Jesus tells us that this is how we should pray, that we should address God as our Father. It was the tendency among the Jews at that time to use various terms that ascribe, you know, that speak of God's majesty and his glory, his sovereignty, his lordship. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He simply says, our Father in heaven. And he tells us that we are to do the same thing. Some might complain that this is very familiar, that this is almost presumptuous. Imagine calling the God of all creation your father. Why does Jesus do this then? Why does he tell us that this is how we should pray? Well, it's foundational to the Christian faith. You see, we refer to God as our father in part because Jesus is his son. The incarnation tells us that there is God the Father and there is God the Son. Jesus is God the Son. He alone is the Son of God in that unique way. John tells us no one has ever seen God but the only begotten Son who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. God the Father sent God the Son into the world to reveal himself to the world and to give his life as a sacrifice for his people. So we become God's sons and daughters when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus. We are not his sons and daughters by nature, but by adoption, not by right. We don't have the right to call ourselves sons of God. It is by grace. And it isn't by creation, but it is by God's choice. And this answers, at least for me, two questions. The first is, can everyone call God their father. After all, by creation, he is, in a sense, the father of us all because he made us. But as Jesus reveals him as our father in heaven, it is to those that God has adopted, those who have put their faith in him. So no, not everyone gets to call God father. Many people do. That doesn't make God their father. The second question is, can anyone call God father who does not believe in Jesus? And this perhaps is an even larger question, and the answer is no. It is because of what Jesus tells us that we are now able to call God Father. If you reject Jesus as the Son, then how can God be the Father? He cannot be a father without a child, without a son. And Jesus is the Son. You may have noticed that other religions have a tendency to refer to God as Father. I think that this is disingenuous and it is misleading. You cannot call God Father if he has no son, no child. And Jesus is the Son of God and therefore we can call God Father. 
Otherwise, we cannot. It's striking that the word that Jesus uses is the Aramaic word, Abba. It is a word of everyday language, and every family has their own version of it, Papa, Dad, Daddy, Papa, or Pop. Some object that this is just too disrespectful. It's too familiar uh, to refer God to God in such, uh, such terms. But we shouldn't be surprised by the familiarity, the closeness, if you wish, the intimacy. Because in chapter 5, we saw that God loves perfectly. In the first seven verses, we see that God who sees what is done secretly will reward openly. And in verse number 8 that we just looked at, he knows what we need even before we ask. Still one might ask, what is, what is God the Father like? What is our Father in heaven like? Do you know the expression, like Father, like Son? When we look at God's Son, then we come to see who the Father is like. In Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn over all creation. In Hebrews 1, for God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. What is our Father like? Look at Jesus. This is what our Father is like. In him you will see the Father. There are those, though, who really struggle. Seriously, they struggle with calling God Father. They close their eyes, they kneel if you wish, they sit, whatever posture, because that doesn't matter, and they begin and they say, Father, and immediately they are almost overwhelmed with negative images of their earthly father. I remember meeting someone who had this very problem, who was raised in a Christian home, but had uh, an abusive father, and she told me, Damon, I've tried to pray. I cannot pray. She says, because every time I close my eyes and I say, my father or our father, I immediately think of my dad, and that's the end. The prayer is over. I'm not going any further than that. And sadly, she has left the faith. I pray that one day God will bring her back. What are you to do? What are you to do if, in fact, you did not have a good earthly father? How is it that you are to address our, your heavenly father? What can you do? I would say look at the person of Jesus. Look at Jesus. He is the image of our heavenly father. You might say, I have an earthly father and not a good thing for me to imagine God as my earthly father. Fine. You're to look to Jesus because he is the exact representation of God. I realize that this is easier said than done, but I think it is the right path. For us, if we want to know what God the Father is like, then read the Gospels. What did Jesus do? How did he treat people? How did he speak to people? People oftentimes have a very negative view of God, and I'm like, where did you get that? Because you certainly don't get it from looking at Jesus. I think this should also serve as a warning to Christian fathers 
that they in fact have a responsibility as a father to be a good father because that is who their children look to for love, for protection, for provision, and for discipline. That by God's grace, when people, when your children learn to pray and they say, Father, they would not think negatively, but say, I've had a good father, and I know that my father in heaven loves me. I can't tell you how many people have left the faith because, in fact, they did not have good fathers. So I said the word that Jesus uses is Abba. It's a common word, a common everyday word within the home. Uh, every family has its equivalent. Every family has a special name for their dad, for their father. It may seem presumptuous, but it need not be. You see, Jesus doesn't simply tell us to pray our father. He doesn't stop there, but our father in heaven. We are to come to him with childlike faith. Almost a child running up and jumping into his or her father's arms. But we are also to recognize that there's a distance. That we cannot be overly familiar. That in the way that we are to respect our parents, we are to have reverence for God. Because God is in heaven. And so when we pray, our thoughts in many ways should be elevated rather than sort of lowered. We are to remember God's power, his glory, his majesty, and to realize that he knows everything. He knows everything that is going on. And yet, because he is in heaven, you know, he isn't in Colorado or in France. He's in heaven. We all have access to him, immediate access and we can pray to him. I've told you this before, but I attended an Anglican school growing up in the Philippines. And I think at a certain point, I don't know if somebody got nervous that they weren't being relevant enough, and so they allowed one of the students to write a prayer uh, for the morning service. We had chapel every day before school. And this person, instead of beginning with our Father, or our Father in Heaven, or a Heavenly Father, began... Oh, Daddy-O. I think what he was doing was connecting with the Our Father part. But he had forgotten the In Heaven part. That yes, we can in fact jump into our Father's arms. We can call him Father and trust him as a child, trust his or her dad. But he's in Heaven as well. He is the Lord God Almighty and there should be reverence. We can pray our Father in heaven. And we need to remember that when we pray in secret, our Father in heaven sees and hears us. Our Father in heaven knows what we need even before we ask. And our Father in heaven will take care of us. The Lord willing, we'll continue this next Sunday. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we are grateful that you are our Father in heaven. That you have called us to be your children. You sent your Son to tell us all about you. To live among us as you would. So if we want to know what you are like, we look to your Son, the Lord Jesus. And when we see him dying on a cross 
there we also see your willingness to do more than we can ask or imagine. Prayer does not come naturally to us, in part because we can't see you. We, see, we seem comfortable enough talking on our cell phones um, to people we can't see, but somehow prayer seems difficult. May we see by your Spirit that you are our Father, and in Jesus we see what you are like, and that we are to pray to you in the way that a father enjoys talking with his son or daughter, you want to hear from us. You know what we need, and you want us to come to you expressing what we need, but you already know. We're not there to educate you. And in the process of praying, we become more like you. May we not be like Pharisees and hypocrites, or pagans who think that they can wear you down. But may we be like children who trust their father to know that he loves them, he sees all that is going on with them. He knows what they need. Help us to trust you, Father. Increase our faith. And in the words of James, may we not be hearers only, but doers as well. May we not become experts in the matter of prayer, but may we become people who pray as they should. I thank you for bringing us together today, for calling us out. I thank you for calling us to be your children, your sons and daughters. I thank you for loving us. May your spirit and your grace go with us as we leave this place today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.